0: When Diplomacy Fails presents The July Crisis Anniversary Project A day-by-day account of the events that occurred 100 years ago. The Last Day of Peace Today is the 31st of July 2014, And on this day in history, 100 years ago, occurred the following events. At 7pm in the evening of the 30th of July 1914, commanders in Russia's border areas with Austria received telegrams to begin their mobilization. An hour later, they replied back that the mobilization process was underway. Russia was mobilizing its frontier regions to prepare for an attack against Austria and Germany. They were doing this after Russian statesmen had finally persuaded the Tsar that mobilization was needed against the Central Powers, despite the fact that this would cause a chain reaction of mobilizations in Germany and France, and thus make war inevitable. France had in fact already begun its own measures on the night of the 30th of July. A false report that Germany was moving covering forces to the frontier was enough to persuade the Chief of Staff Joffre that France had to begin its own procedures and three and a half hours after Russian mobilisation, at 7.30pm Russian time, the order came through to begin the covering of the border with Germany. René Viviani, in a letter to the ambassador in London, outlined why the French were preparing for a war, but not willing to yet attack. In doing so, we have no other reason than to prove to British public opinion and the British government that France, like Russia, will not fire the first shot. The First World War, it seemed, was only days away from beginning, but the lesser-known battle for British neutrality or belligerence, waged by the Central Powers and Entente alike, was about to begin in earnest also. After picking up alarming reports of Russian troop movements along the German border at 11pm on the thirtieth of July, German Chief of Staff Maltke had not slept well that night. He awoke at dawn to meet with the German Chancellor, Theobald von Bethmann-Holweg, who, the night before, had become so concerned at Maltka's findings that he cancelled the mediation plan for Vienna. Still in desperate need for a definite confirmation of what Russia was doing, Maltka even went as far as telephoning up a border commander and requesting that one of his soldiers steal one of the red placards used to announce mobilisation, so that Maltka would have some evidence to present to the relevant civilians. Sergei Sazanov, the Russian foreign minister, had ensured that by failing to provide information on what a state was doing, Germany was falling over itself in the investigations, wasting valuable time, and proving unable to act. Just as Bethmann tried to gain a credible source, he was visited by Ambassador Gotchen, Britain's ambassador to Germany. Gotchen, unaware of Russian events or rumours, opened his meeting with the likely now-fidgeting Bethmann at around 10am, ...to announce that Britain was rejecting Grey's previous neutrality proposal. But Bethmann blurted out in his excitement that he had just received... ...news from the Russian frontier which, if confirmed, would create a very grave and dangerous situation... ...and might oblige Germany to make a serious communication to the Russian government. Bethmann claimed that the Russians had destroyed their customs houses on the German frontier... ...and had carried off their money in chests into the interior... Prakashin seems to not have really grasped the gravity of the situation, mainly because he was just as out of the loop as Grey was in London, so he replied to Bethman that, These proceedings, if true, seemed to be not so much a menace to Germany as measures of precaution, uh, to meet all emergencies. In response, Bethman shook his tired head, and countered that, On the contrary, taken with other news which had reached him, both from Russia and Sweden, the above news threatened general mobilisation, Bethmann then issued a stern warning, which Gotchin recorded, as well as the rest of the conversation that he was later sent to Grey. If the news he received proved true, and Russian military measures were also being taken against Germany, he could not leave his country defenceless while other powers were gaining time. He was now going to see the Emperor, and he wished me to tell you that it was quite possible that in a very short time, perhaps even today, that they would have to take some very serious step. The ill-informed Gotchin left the room and Bethmann then participated in an emergency meeting with Moltke and the Minister for War, Erich von Falkenhayn. Before Moltke could assemble the relevant facts, the German ambassador to Russia, Heinrich Portelet did the work for him. Portelay sent a message to Berlin confirming the Russian moves at 11.40am on the 31st of July, with the no-nonsense message announcing, General mobilisation, army and navy ordered. First day of mobilisation, 31st of July. By reporting back to Berlin with haste, Portelay had confirmed the worst fears of Bethmann and vindicated the opinions of first Falkenhayn and now The time for talking was over. Russia had forced the issue, and unless she stopped what she was doing, there would be war. Germany now began its period preparatory to war. Kaiser Wilhelm II wasted no time signing the order into law at 3pm. This would heighten security on the railways, inaugurate military censorship and martial law, and cancel all leaves. Not to mention the strengthening of border defences, and the suspension of postal traffic across the frontier. Unlike Russia's equivalent though, this imminent danger of war procedure would automatically lead to war within a few days, because of the way it had been previously designed to lead straight from preparations to mobilisation. This was why Bethmann had previously been so hesitant to order it into law, but now he clearly had no choice. Before he had learned of the Russian mobilisation, though, Wilhelm seemed content to continue the correspondence with the Tsar, and in a letter to him on the morning of the 31st of July, wrote, On your appeal to my friendship and your call for assistance, I began to mediate between your and the Austro-Hungarian government. While this action was proceeding, your troops were mobilised against Austria-Hungary, my ally... Thereby, as I have already pointed out to you, my mediation has been made almost illusory. I have nevertheless continued my action. I now receive authentic news of serious preparations for war on my eastern frontier. Responsibility for the safety of my empire forces preventative measures of defence upon me. In my endeavours to maintain the peace of the world, I have gone to the utmost limit possible. The responsibility for the disaster, which is now threatening the whole civilised world, will not be laid at my door. In this moment, it still lies in your power to avert it. Nobody is threatening the honour or power of Russia who can well afford to await the result of my mediation. My friendship for you and your empire, transmitted to me by my grandfather on his deathbed, has always been sacred to me. And I have honestly often backed up Russia when she was in serious trouble, especially in her last war. The peace of Europe may still be maintained by you if Russia will agree to stop the military measures which threaten Germany and Austria-Hungary. This incredible appeal would likely have been torn in half by Wilhelm had it still been in his hands once he learned of Russian mobilisation. But this telegram was in fact sent in response to rumours, in the early morning, when Wilhelm still believed that the peace could be saved. By signing his own version of the period preparatory to war into law though, after receiving the news, the Kaiser effectively ripped up the telegram anyway, since now that Germany was answering Russia's measures, it would be next to impossible to pull back as before. By 3.30pm today, Bethmann had informed his ambassadors in the major European capitals, including in Russia, of the German countermeasures. To Europe though, mostly unaware of Russian secret actions that the German ambassadors and representatives now informed them of, the German actions seemed like the first act of the march to war, or the eventual response to Russia. Despite this though, and despite Sazanov's efforts to keep Russian measures secret for who knows how long, a panic selling began in the financial markets. At 10.15am, the London Stock Exchange was forced to close to prevent the drop and panic in the share prices, something which hadn't occurred since 1773, when news across the Atlantic had then provoked a similar result. Sentiment in London remained ardently against intervention, no doubt the opinion of the populace would have been welcome news to Germany, and especially Wilhelm. It was Grey who told Lichnowsky, the German ambassador to Britain, as the war fever seemed to drip from London's financial district. That. I have, today, the impression of improved relations with Germany. Perhaps also some friendly feeling in the cabinet makes it possible that, in the case of war, England will probably adopt an attitude of waitful watching. It wasn't so much Grey's own sentiments that had motivated him to make this statement to the eager Anglophile ambassador, but the political facts on the ground. Grey knew he would be unable to secure support for intervention, while the majority favoured no intervention at all. This news sat well with Nikonovsky, who would be able to report a positive meeting to Berlin. However, just as Grey pleased the Germans to inform them of British inaction, he was being pressed by the Russian and French ambassadors to make a stand for the Entente. One statesman in particular, Paul Cambon, the French ambassador to Britain, was facing the fight of his life in attempting to persuade Grey to persuade his cabinet to guarantee British involvement in the war for the security of France. The meeting Grey had with Cambon on Friday evening was as difficult as most of his meetings generally were with the Frenchman. Cambon spoke poor English and Gray spoke poor French, so the two either brought in a translator, which rarely helped matters, or simply spoke very slowly to one another in their preferred language. Gray had reported to his ambassador in Paris before he met with Cambon that no one here feels in this dispute, so far as it has gone yet, that British treaties or obligations are involved. Gray concluded by saying that he could offer France no definite pledge in the war, His face-to-face meeting with Cambon later didn't promise much better results for the now anxious French ambassador. Grey opened the meeting between himself and Cambon by trying to reassure the ambassador of Britain's previous suggestions to Germany. We had not left Germany under the impression that we would stand aside. Adding that he had told Ignowski earlier that day that in the event of a conflict, we should be drawn into it. In fact, he had issued this warning to the German ambassador on Wednesday and the situation remained as uncertain now as it did then in Grey's political mind. Cambon asked Grey straight up for a commitment, to which Grey replied that he could not give any pledge at this present time. Surely panicking deep down, Cambon outwardly expressed deep disappointment and tried to ascertain whether we would help France if Germany made an attack on her. But Grey's answer was the same. As far as things have gone at the present, Gray claimed, we could not take any engagement. Paul Cambon may have felt let down, but worse was yet to come in the conversation. As if trying to change the subject, Gray informed Cambon that Russia had ordered a complete mobilization of her fleet and army. Later documents would reveal that the British Foreign Office cited the German embassy as the source for this information, which Russia and France were still apparently reluctant to share. With their supposed Entente ally. But it was the next bit of the conversation that likely kept Cambon awake at night. Russia's mobilisation, Gray informed Cambon, would precipitate a crisis and would make it appear that German mobilisation was being forced by Russia. This incredible threat, if in one could call it that, must have struck Cambon like a thunderbolt, and indeed, if Sazonov or Pon Gray had heard it, then they would have realised that their entire policy was on the ropes. All of Sazanov's secrecy, following the issuing of mobilisation, and all of Pancaré's silence about Russian moves to his ally, were aimed at persuading Britain that it was not the Entente, but the Central Powers and Germany that were firing the first shots and landing the first critical blows. The fact that Gray stated so plainly how the situation would look to British opinion if Russian measures were discovered to be true, suggested that the Franco-Russian fears had not been unfounded. The only chance they had for British intervention, it seemed, was the illusion that Germany fired first. And as this meeting was starting to demonstrate to Cambon, that illusion on the 31st of July was hanging by a thread. Gray soon changed the subject back and adopted his older, less meaningful tone. Because he simply didn't know how or if he was going to get the cabinet to approve intervention for France, he had to continue to stall and hedge in the hope that eventually a promise would be forthcoming. It is difficult to ascertain from the records whether Gray genuinely wanted to intervene at this point. Certainly his like-minded colleagues, including Churchill, wanted to. Though he considered himself a member of the Interventionist Party, his hands were tied now, and they would be even more so if it was discovered in London that St. Petersburg had set the entire march to war in motion in the first place. Gray concluded the meeting by promising Cambon that... The cabinet would certainly be summoned as soon as there was some new development, but at the moment the only answer I could give was that we could not undertake any definite arrangement. Cambon, infuriated, went complaining to the like-minded undersecretary Sir Arthur Nicholson, who thereafter met with Grey. Grey reminded Nicholson that he had recently sent a letter to Paris in Berlin, which had demanded a pledge from both to respect the sovereignty of Belgium. Gray said that if Berlin refused, then perhaps on these grounds he could lobby more effectively for intervention. Gray seems to not have yet fully grasped the fact that if he did try to make this presentation amidst the facts that were now emerging, that the anti-interventionists would bring up the fact that Russia had in fact started the whole mobilisation process in the first place, and that this meant Germany was merely defending itself. On the other hand, perhaps he did realise this and was merely trying to pacify Nicholson and please as many people at once. It was difficult to call, certainly for the average Londoner on the street, Grey was going to have to do better than use the implications of the Entente if he wanted to rouse their empathy and support for the war. He would need a far more sympathetic cause. In a memorandum on the 31st of July, one of Grey's interventionist's colleagues, a man named Ear Crow, wrote up how and why Grey and Britain could and should justify intervening on behalf of France. Crow utilised a moral argument, claiming that while the Entente between Britain and France did not explicitly state the British participation in the war, that circumstances had led to a situation in 1914 whereby France was relying on Britain for its security. An example of this is seen in the fact that France had left its northern coasts undefended, and had moved its navy to the Mediterranean. Thus, Crow argued, if Britain remained on the sidelines, French coasts would be hideously bombarded and all because the French navy had left them undefended, with the understanding that Britain would defend them when the time came. He wrote, The argument that there is no Britain agreement binding us to France is strictly correct. There is no contractual obligation. But the Entente has been made, strengthened, and put to the test and celebrated in a manner justifying the belief that a moral bond was being forged. The whole policy of the Entente would have no meaning if it does not signify that in a just quarrel, England would stand by her friends. This honourable expectation has been raised. We cannot repudiate it without exposing our good name to grave criticism. However, Britain did take some technical steps that benefited the French and Russians. Churchill seized the two dreadnoughts that were headed for Turkey, but not out of love for Russia. As the First Lord of the Admiralty understood it, all vessels were now necessary for the impending naval war against Germany. But France expected to bear the brunt of Germany's initial assault The unfortunate result of Russian mobilisation for France was that it now meant a timer was ticking before German boots arrived on her soil, so to stop them she had to mobilise herself. But the timetable was tight. The most recent mobilisation plan, 27, had envisioned the completion of French mobilisation by M plus 9 or 10, yet the German equivalent of these measures expected to be finished by M plus 12, to be ready for the offensive into the west by M plus 13. It gave France some extra time to gather its offensive into the occupied Alsace-Lorraine territory that virtually everyone in Europe foresaw. Though the military plans of both powers are not our concern in this project, it is still interesting to note how logistics played such a critical role in the fundamentals of diplomacy. In other words, had the powers of Europe not been working of such a stringent timetable, whether it was Germany with its Schlieffen Plan or France with its Plan 27 to counterbalance the German speed, then perhaps the urgency to mobilise would not have been present, and the requirement to answer force with force would not have been either. France had confirmed by 3.30pm on the 31st of July that Russia had begun its general mobilisation, yet again from a German source this time from France's ambassador to Berlin. When Germany learned of the fact, and the French Foreign Office upheld that she now had, she would feel forced to respond in kind, meaning that a general war was on the horizon. The validity of this assertion was reinforced by Germany's ambassador to France, Baron Schoen, who called at the French Foreign Office at 6.30pm today, even as the French cabinet was meeting to discuss the implications of the Russian mobilisation that the French ambassador in Berlin had just delivered. Schoen didn't waste time. He informed René Viviani that because of Russian mobilisation, Germany now had activated the immediate danger of war at 3pm. Schoen continued that the Russian government was being asked to demobilise on her German and her Austrian borders within a 12-hour time limit from midnight until noon Saturday. Barring these orders, Germany would be forced to mobilise, which meant war. In response to this, Viviani made the incredible claim that he had no information at all about an alleged total mobilisation of the Russian army and navy. This despite leaving the meeting discussing the news of such mobilisation to talk to Schoen. Schoen ignored the lie and went on to ask what the attitude of France would be in the event of a war with Russia. Viviani remained evasive and acted in a similar vein to Gray, although for different reasons. He told Schoen that he could not, as of yet, give an answer so when Schoen asked if he should begin to get his passports ready, Viviani maintained he should wait. When Viviani left Schoen to return for dinner, he ran into the Chief of Staff Joffrey, who he informed about what Schoen had said, and how he had said it in such a way as to make it sound like a quasi-ultimatum. Joffrey, disturbed by a German activity, thereafter informed the War Minister, to give an order for a general mobilization without an instant's delay. While Viviani was eating at home, an incredible message came through from Paleolog in St. Petersburg. The Telegram, received at 8.30pm, announced that an order has been given for the general mobilization of the Russian army. And that was it. Paleolog, having been in the loop, being present on Wednesday night when the general mobilization order was announced and then cancelled, but then failed to report on it, wired off this message from the Russian capital of actual mobilization at 10.43am this morning. It meant that the French ambassador to Russia had taken a total of 30 hours to enlighten France as to Russia's true actions, since general mobilization had been proclaimed in Russia at 4pm yesterday. Paleologue had an arsenal of excuses lined up to explain his lateness, but the effect was such in Paris now that few were focused on the ambassador anymore. By 9.45pm, one of Europe's most ardent socialists and pacifists was dead, shot in a cafe while he conversed with friends, having only hours before returned from an anti-war congress in Brussels, organised by the Socialist International. At the meeting, this famous French figure had embraced a German socialist and was said to have exploded with anger when asked about the current situation, Are we going to unleash a European war because Izvolsky is still furious over Arnthal's deception in the Bosnian affair? His reference to recent history is striking because of the glaring similarities that the Bosnian crisis of nineteen o eight to o nine and the current July crisis held in common. This time around, though, Austria had not merely mobilised, she had declared war, and Russia was in the process of doing the same. Though Vienna had, Sazonov could claim, started the whole countdown to war by marching against Belgrade, very few European statesmen seemed to remember Vienna anymore, and this was attested to by a later visit by the Austro-Hungarian ambassador to Paris. The killing of the pacifist and socialist figure, John Huare was an international incident that threatened to set the whole of French opinion ablaze yet again. In a panic, did the French government threaten to utilise the list of subversive elements they had gathered in the event of war to safeguard the security of the country. And yet Viviani, who knew many socialist Frenchmen on that list, was able to persuade them otherwise after much protest. Though the French government was on edge amidst news of the killing and of the European-wide strike that the Socialist International had threatened to use in order to prevent the effective mobilisation of the interested states if war did break out, the situation remained eerily under control in Paris. Still though, as ill omens for the peace go, the French government would have been aware that few were worse than the killing of a world-renowned pacifist. The British ambassador to France was shortly banging on Viviani's door, demanding an answer to the previous request for respecting Belgian neutrality. The eventual message for Grey left no illusion about the French stance. The French government are resolved to respect the neutrality of Belgium, and it would only be in the event of some other power violating that neutrality that France might find herself under the necessity to act otherwise. Though they could guarantee Belgium, France made no attempt to rein in her ally. No correspondence was sent to Sazanov or the Tsar from Poincaré, urging for a climb-down or begging for the cancellation of the mobilisation order that threatened to set Europe ablaze. It appears as though the two French leaders had accepted the course of events. The only course remained to mobilise the country and join her ally. There was no need for any more late-night consultations between allies, and certainly no room for any last-minute changing of mind. This was the set course. ...and no deviation would henceforth occur. In fact, the French Minister for War impressed upon Izvolsky, the Russian ambassador to France... ...in solemn, heartfelt tones of the French government's firm resolve to fight. While in exchange, the War Minister supposedly begged Izvolsky ...to confirm the hope of the French General Staff that all efforts will be directed against Germany... ...and that Austria will be regarded as a negligible quantity. Having decided on their course... All that remained for French statesmen was to ensure that their allies stood up, and soaked up, the expected German onslaught as per the alliance. In other words, if any words were spoken between the two allies, it was on the question of what the strategy was to be in the war, rather than how to stop said war. However, Paris and St. Petersburg weren't the only powers who had yet to discuss seriously the prospect of mediation. Count Jechen, the Austro-Hungarian ambassador to France, visited the French governmental offices after 10pm today with the urgent news for Paris that Austria had officially told Russia that she did not intend to annex any Serb territory nor infringe upon Serbian rights. Jechen assured Viviani's replacement, since his Prime Minister was now in bed exhausted, that "...it ought to be possible to still settle the question, Austrian mobilisation not being war and leaving a few days still for conversations." Viviani's replacement, the director of the Ministry for Foreign Affairs, told Jechen that he was extremely late and that his proposal had been overtaken by events. Considering the fact that Russia and Austria had undergone general mobilisation and that France and Germany would soon follow suit, calling Jechen's outdated and overused proposals extremely late seemed like the understatement of the July crisis. Not only had Vienna waited until the latest possible moment to reassure Russia of its intentions in Serbia, but it had also waited until the twilight hours of peace before it pursued Russia's ally in any kind of earnest. Perhaps this was the effect of Bethmann's urgency from the days before. The Chancellor, not wanting to be caught in the European war, had demanded that Austria-Hungary effectively surrender itself to the negotiations. The efforts by Vienna now, pathetic, useless and about a week too late, reflect the entire story of the creaking Habsburg Empire in the July Crisis. Though it was Austria that had sent the ultimatum, declared the war and apparently forced Russia's hand, it was on Germany and Russia that the world's attention now rested. Vienna, it seemed, had been all but forgotten. Austria-Hungary, under pressure from Maltke and Bethmann, to act forcefully yet again, had announced general mobilisation against Russia at noon on Friday the 31st of July, thereby abandoning the pretense that they were mobilising against Serbia alone. The reports from Maltka had gradually persuaded first the Emperor, Franz Josef, and then Berchtold and Stefan Tisa that a commitment to their ally had to be forthcoming. The insignificance with which Europe regarded Austria's mobilisation is striking when one considers the ripples Vienna had caused in Europe since the 28th of June. So unimportant was their mobilisation considered that France's ambassador to Germany actually mixed up the timing of the Russian and Austrian mobilisation, reporting to Paris that, Russia had just decided on total mobilisation in response to Austrian total mobilisation. However, because of the disinterest with which Europe regarded the Habsburg's military measures except, of course, in the case of its ally, news of the Austrian action would soon become lost and the other shattering announcements to come. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince.